You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. This is part two of Danish Dynamite, the story of the rise, the fall and the rebirth of Danish cycling. In part one, we heard about Bjarne Ries, who won the 1996 Tour de France, but later admitted that his victory was powered by the banned blood-boosting drug EPO. Danish cycling was to suffer a second significant scandal at the Tour de France. Michael Rasmussen was wearing the yellow jersey in 2007, deep into the race, just a few days from Paris, almost certain to win, until he was stopped in his tracks, caught in a web of deceit. A few years ago, I spoke to Rasmussen for an episode of Kilometer Zero, and he wasn't entirely repentant. Kæmpe præstation af Michael Rasmussen. Vi klapper ham for andet år i træk i Tour de France. Laver han sådan et stunt? Hvor er det her store? Well, it uh, it's a long story, and uh, it, it started uh, it started a long time before 2007. I'd been uh, been going quite well in the years. Uh, prior to 2007 and uh, and felt that the time was coming where I could actually go into the race as a potential winner. Obviously I didn't I didn't get to finish the race. Uh, my own team took me out of the race at uh, at a point where I was actually leading uh, by more than 3 minutes to Contador just 3 days away from Paris. I have made a mistake and uh, UCI has given me a written warning no sorry a recorded warning for that uh, administrative mistake that I have made and I accept that I take full responsibility for it prior to the tour um, I had uh, received some warnings uh, for my uh, for my whereabouts and then suddenly during the tour, the, the director of the Danish Cycling Federation, he was uh, revealing the confidential information about the whereabouts warnings I had. Um, and that caused uh, um, quite some, uh, some disturbance and turbulence during the tour. What was the reason for giving false information on your whereabouts form um, for the UCI? Well, that was the reason so I could could prepare myself for performance enhancing uh, drugs at that time. I have uh, been licensed in Mexico for two years prior to this year, and uh, I have not been tested by the Mexican Federation. You obviously said you were in Mexico, I presume, because you felt that the Mexican authorities were very unlikely to test you while you were there and that perhaps the Danish authorities wouldn't travel to Mexico, whereas they might, higher chance that they might pay the money to travel to Italy to test you. But it emerged that you had been spotted out training by a commentator, former professional rider, commentator on Rai television in Italy, Davide Cassani, and this information came to light in quite an explosive press conference in Po, didn't it, um, during the Tour de France, or had it already come out? No, actually, it, uh, Davide Cassani, he said it on, uh, during stage eight, when I won, uh, won the stage to Tinia and got the yellow jersey. Um, but uh, the story didn't come out until I won my second stage on Col du Bisque after the day after the press conference, um, and that's when uh, that's when everything exploded. I'm sorry that 
the situation is uh, is coming out now at the moment when I'm wearing the yellow jersey and it's uh, it's harming a sport that I dearly love and uh, and it's harming the Tour de France and the ASO. But that press conference was quite, uh, there was quite an atmosphere in the room, wasn't there? Because your Rabobank team brought the team's lawyer um, with them. You, you looked like you were under fire. You had faced quite a bit of questioning in the days leading up because, you, you know, you're in the yellow jersey and this story was rumbling away. Did you feel at that point that, that, that the game was up, that you weren't going to survive? No, um, I, I didn't and nobody in the team did uh, because we were still just talking about whereabouts uh, and nobody has ever been kicked out of the Tour de France for not telling the truth. As said before, I was allowed to have three warnings, I only had two. It's funny, I'm thinking back now to how it, it all came out because the bottom line was the, the, the scenario that you, you were involved in, it did give the impression that the reason you'd given inf- incorrect information was because you were trying to mask doping. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's the obvious. Um, but nevertheless, you, you cannot pull people out because they're not telling the truth. Did you feel at that point that you, you, you know, you were obviously you were obviously lying to the the world's media? I guess you didn't you didn't feel any sense of sort of guilt or concern about that. I guess you can say that lying was a part of the job description at that time. You know, once an, a professional athlete or a cyclist is asked, have you ever taken drugs? There's only one right answer, and that's no. You know, you will never, ever get the answer yes. So, you know, it's, it's even stupid to ask the question. You could, should might as well ask me if I'd been unfaithful to my wife while sitting in front of her. There's only one right answer, it's no. So really the whole thing was a charade? Well, at, at, uh, you know, you, you could not expect anything else. We were riding for yellow. I want to make absolutely clear that um, I've had out of competition tests prior to the Tour de France and uh, up until this morning I've had uh, 14 anti-doping tests um, during the Tour and all the results are negative Um, and and I do support my team uh, and our sponsor Rabobank in uh, in a fight against doping and uh, and a clean sport. And so, what happened later that evening in in the Rabobank team hotel? Well, I was I was confronted um, with the fact that Theo de Roy he had received a phone call from uh, from a Dutch journalist, um, and he had information that David Cassani had seen me in Italy. Um, so Theo de Roy he comes into my room. Um, and he's uh, asking me, um, did Cassani see you in Italy? He did not ask me, have you not been to Mexico? He asked me, did Cassani see you in Italy? Because he knew very well that Mexico was never part of the game. But the team were in on what you were doing. They knew you know, how you prepared yourself. Well, the team, they had been bringing... Uh, carrying blood bags uh, for me they had been carrying around DPO in the bus for me and other riders they had been carrying around insulin they had been issuing false certificates for cortisone and well you name it and so you thought you'd get away with it um yeah I was uh, there, there were no rules in the book at that time 
that could take me out of the race. Um, according to the rule book, I was allowed to have three warnings, and uh, and this had um, very great consequences for me by just having two. Um, the only ones that actually could take me out of the race was my own employer, Rabobank, and they, of course, knew where they could find me all along. I never lied to my team. But just uh, you say that. Uh you were within the rules in the sense that you could have three um, misses on your whereabouts. But the whole point of the whereabouts was for people to give honest information rather than try to game the system. It strikes me there you were trying to game the system because isn't ultimately the the biggest rule that you shouldn't take performance-enhancing drugs or is the rule that you shouldn't get caught taking them? Well, I think that um, in the environment that I was in at that time, uh, taking performance-enhancing drugs was m- certainly more the rule than the exception. Um, so in, in that sense, I certainly n- did not feel that I was uh, breaking any rules towards my, my compet- competitors, or at least what I thought were who were my competitors. Um, and, and in fact, I didn't really care about what anybody else they did. I just tried to do the best for myself. So your opinion at the time was that the, ev- everyone was at it, everyone was doping in... Sort of those years up to 2007? Well, I, I can't say that everybody was, of course. Um, but it's it's my my clear feeling that just looking in the history books, uh, uh, a raised number of writers, they were. Um, I think if you look at the top 20 from the Tour 2005, uh, starting with Lance Armstrong, Jan Ulrich, Ivan Basso, Levi Leipheimer, Vinokurov, Landis, myself... And the list goes on and on. Um, it's it's hard to believe that uh, I would be the only one left in 2007. So was it your view then that you wanted to win the Tour de France and you would do it by any means possible? I just wanted to prepare myself the best possible way I could. So you didn't see it as cheating? I I didn't think about it as, as, as cheating. Uh, I'd been cycling for that at that point for for many many years um so the thoughts about uh, cheating never crossed my mind um it was just a matter of of preparing myself in the best possible manner for 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 the race when you eventually spoke to the anti-doping authorities you you admitted that you'd been using performance-enhancing drugs since 1998, I mean, almost a decade before um, you were finally caught, and then you weren't caught by a, a test, you were caught by an administrative procedure. So presumably you had the feeling that you could take these substances with, with impunity, without the fear of, of getting caught. Was there never any knot in your stomach thinking, if I get, you know, I'm playing with fire here, I might get caught, my career is on the line? I was never ever afraid to uh, to take a drug test in my life. Um, I never took any chances and never ran any risks at that time. I bear in mind that I was actually racing the Tour de France with a hematocrit of 43, very far from the line of 50. So did you almost have your own kind of moral code or, or was it more of a practical code where you thought I'll keep my numbers within a certain limit so I don't trip the wire, so I don't get into trouble? I just felt that uh, I did what was what was needed to fulfill my ambitions. You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. 
go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Matteo Trentin fra Pont, Mads Pedersen kommer ud til venstre. Mads Pedersen kører for at blive verdensmester. Mads Pedersen! Han vinder! Ja, han gør det! Han vinder! Mads Pedersen! 23 år bliver verdensmester! Nej, var det sindssygt. Danish cycling has recovered. A new generation of riders have burst onto the scene and secured some of the biggest results in the country's cycling history. A world title for Mads Pedersen, a Tour of Flanders for Kasper Askren, stage wins in the Grand Tours, and last year, second place in the Tour de France for a young hopeful, Jonas Vingegaard, who was one of the stars of the team presentation back in Copenhagen. There are high hopes in Denmark that if anything goes awry with Primoz Roglic's challenge, Vingegaard will be allowed to step into the fray. This year's start in Denmark has been long awaited, and last year, before the Grand Depart in Copenhagen, Richard Moore spoke to some of the Danish riders about their excitement and anticipation ahead of a start in their home country. I wanted to ask you about uh, Copenhagen next year. Um, That must be something you'd love to do and be part of. Absolutely. This is Chris Jule Jensen, who's riding for Bike Exchange. I think one of the proudest cycling nations is Denmark. Um, You know, they they really, they welcome any bike race um, that is in Denmark, Tour of Denmark, which, you know, I have the privilege of winning, which it's always uh, renowned for its its massive crowds, uh, good atmosphere. And there's a strong sporting culture in general in, in Denmark. So, so of course, starting the biggest bike race in, on home soil is uh, would be massive, absolutely. The other aspect of this uh, Grand Depart in Denmark is just the, the boom in Danish cycling. I mean, the number of Danish riders um, really performing extremely well. Is there a reason for that? I mean, what what do you think? Is it is it just coincidence, or is it is, does it owe to anything that's being done in Denmark? Oh, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I think there's, there's just such a strong, healthy sporting culture in Denmark. Um, youth development programs, you know, the, 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 the opportunity to, to go to secondary school at the same time, you know, have all the support and, um, and time you need to take care of, of, of whichever sport you, you do. If you're, if you're amongst sort of the, the, the top, top tier, the big, the big talents, then Danish Sports Federation, Cycling Federation especially, they they go a long way or they go out of the way to sort of help the talents and there's a strong continental scene and I think you know for every year there's there's uh, pros that do well that encourages you know the youth youth categories to surely that that um, inspires a lot of kids to sort of go out and cycle summer in Denmark is uh, and the Tour de France they go hand in hand you know it's 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 massive uh, it's everywhere it's on the telly it's on the radio it's in the newspaper it's 24 7 really so it really, you know, it's the whole sporting culture there is in Denmark that that uh, that makes the difference that, that we now uh, are reaping the benefits of now. Incredible period for Danish cycling moment. What what's the explanation? Is it a combination of things? Just a coincidence? This is Kasper Askren of Quickstep. There's been a strong uh, generation coming up, and uh, the 94, 95, 96 generation has been really dominant, even from the youth categories and and. Uh, yeah, we've just become professionals now and, and you're still seeing that super high level. So 
I don't think there's any particular secret to it. It's just always been a strong generation. Is there something in the support system at schools as well? Do you get extra extra help when you're a talented athlete? Uh, well, we have a really, really uh, strong uh, continental program that prepares the riders really well. Uh, and I think the bike clubs also, uh, the local clubs also do a really good job of, of teaching uh, teaching the riders uh, how to how to behave and uh, how to have the right uh, approach to uh, to training and, and cycling and uh, I think uh, yeah it's just a good uh, system to grow up in uh, all the way from the local clubs up through the continental ranks and and makes the transition into the pro ranks easier. And finally, um, I guess riding the the Grand Depart of the Tour next year in, in Denmark would mean a lot to you. Yeah, for sure. I uh, hope uh, very much I'm going to be at the start. Uh, we're passing right through my, my hometown on stage three and uh, we're getting even as close as uh, 100 meters from my house. So, uh, yeah, it would be super special to do that race. This is Michael Valgren of EF Education Easy Post, who would have been a favourite to win a stage in this Tour de France had he been able to take the start line. Unfortunately for Valgren, a heavy crash at La Route d'Occitanie in June, not long before the start of the Tour de France, ruled him out of the race. The clubs where, where we're starting from, they, they support us really well. Um, I think they've been doing that for, for many years already. But I think what changes is since Bjarne didn't have his team, you know, we got more spread over across teams and we got more our chances. Um, I think that's also a reason. And then I think uh, the youth is just now is, is really... You know, focused and really, really serious, and, and there is just some good talent, I guess, and strong, strong genes. And is this golden generation that, that you have now is that making a difference in Denmark in terms of the profile of cycling, the coverage that it's getting? Like for me, I think it was nice to, to get a, a degree, so I always know if I stop cycling, I can do something else at least, or have some options. So, and that's actually the mentality most have. Like they give it a school go until they're like first or second year senior and then they give it like a few go years with like becoming professional if that doesn't happen then they can go back to university and what can we look forward to next year i mean you know there have been cases london in 2007 kind of sparked an interest in the uk in cycling and it coincided with a similar generation of talent could the same thing happen do you think with the grand Depart in copenhagen next year oh i sure hope so i think cycling is already getting bigger and bigger every year in denmark it's like one of the biggest sports now outside of football and handball, I guess. So, so we're still in getting there. Uh, hopefully, like this also will attract some more money into the sport to the smaller clubs, because I think that's what really is struggling at the moment, to find the sponsors for these small clubs, uh, or the small teams, to keep it going. Uh, we saw last year Danish pro quantity team went down to country team. So hopefully the tour starting or Grand Depart in Denmark will, will help find the money as well. Then I'm sure we'll see some great talents coming again. So my name is uh, Rasmus Novak Franklin. I'm a co-editor uh, at the uh, Filtered UK online cycling media, probably the biggest, the biggest in Denmark, I think, in Scandinavia even. And uh, I'm currently on paternity leave though, and uh, at the moment I'm also writing my thesis in uh, in history. What you need to understand from like because it was, it was a movement like that started many years ago with people being like, we should get the tour here, and cycling has a big pull in what you would call like probably the upper middle class. Uh, 
what do you call that uh, mammal, middle-aged men in lycra? I mean, they, they are they are is also very very <laughs> present here in Denmark. And I guess when you get a pool in that segment, then some of them will be very well connected. And uh, and uh, for example, our former prime minister um, Lars Lykke Rasmussen was also part of a big part of getting the Tour de France here, and he is a very eco cyclist as well. Uh, so it's that part of that group that really got the, the, the thing moving to get the tour here and the reasons behind it the arguments have actually kind of changed over time for why you should get the tour here I think when you really get down to it people just really thought it would be great to have the Tour de France in Denmark and show off our country whether it'll be economically beneficial is an argument that we still have to this day when, when the tour is here because I think at the end people just really enjoy cycling enjoy the tour, want to get it here and then we'll see what we'll get out of it on the other end. <laughs> well, I won't, um, I won't be... I mean, I'm firmly middle-aged man in Lycra. I will not be anything like as unkind to suggest that you're in that category because you're a much younger man than me. Um, what is the status of Bjarne Rees these days? Because, of course, the only Danish Tour de France winner... Now, I'm old enough to remember in 2007 when he confessed... Uh, finally confessed to uh, taking EPO when he won his tour in 1996. He was, he offered to give back his yellow jersey very mm. symbolically. Um, he was briefly erased from the role of honour. I remember in the build-up to the London start in 2007, they released all of the material, the, the road book and everything. Bjarne Reese's name was left blank from 1996. That, of course, was the first full Christian yes. Prudhomme Tour de France. A small controversy this morning because Bjarne Reese was not part of the presentation. Uh, he, he, he does seem to be persona non grata um, around the Tour de France. What's the actual story? Because he's, the Tour is saying, well, it, we didn't really invite riders, but it is nevertheless always a difficult one when uh, a, a former winner of the race also has an asterisk against that performance and the, the tour is in this terrible bind whether these people are part of the, the the race's history or not yeah i think that's a very good question actually i'm i'm struggling with how honest i should be on this and i think i'm just going to go full honesty with it really because <clears throat> it has to do with the era you're referring to the 90s the golden generation you also talked about which is now we're seeing a rebirth of we have been struggling a lot with how to deal with this Bjarne Ries has probably taken like the big part of the fall because he was the one who won the Tour de France. Whereas other people like uh, Rolf Sørensen, uh, Brian Holm, Jesper Skiby, they haven't been punished as hard uh, for what they did. Uh, maybe also because Brian Holm was earlier with a bad meeting uh, and Bjarne Ries probably went a little bit too long with, with his, uh, his secrets and he also denied the hardest maybe. Uh, so I think it's kind of like a coincidence that was there was like somebody has to pay for what happened, uh, and Bjarne Ries has probably been the biggest persona in Danish cycling with the with CSC and and, and Saxo Bank as well. So I really just think that it's a punishment that maybe not be fair. I think everybody can agree on that because he's actually done a lot of good for cycling as well in Denmark. The voice of the young people, uh, the young riders who are riding now, a lot of them wrote for Bjarne Ries' country team, Virtu Cycling. And they're also very outspoken about him being a big part of them, being where they are now. So maybe he shouldn't be punished, but I guess that's just the way it is that there's a big stain on cycling. It's one of the big things in cycling, isn't it? Can a leopard change their spots? You know, riders from those eras who undoubtedly dote, whether they confessed or not, 
uh, in charge of teams later and whether or not they were able to effect a cultural change within the peloton. I mean, it's, it's really noticeable to me, certainly, that the, the, um, the doping scandals, if you want, of today are, are so much um, more watered down. Than, mm. I mean, it, it may be that it, this, uh, the raids on the Bahrain victorious team, for example, are the tip of an iceberg. We know that there have been investigations into some of the individuals in the management yeah. at Bahrain victorious. But what's the attitude of the, um, the cycling public and the general public? Is there a, is there a kind of a, a veil of cynicism around cycling where everyone just kind of, as they do in some other countries, you'll hear people just assume that they're all doped or, you know, the, the sport is still struggling to shake off um, those associations. What's the kind of general mood in Denmark? As I mentioned, I'm doing, I'm writing my thesis right now. And in that regard, I've interviewed uh, a lot of the current cyclists, actually. Um, and I asked them about that particular question, like, when you go around saying you're a pro, pro racer, what reception do you get? And a lot of them also still get this, oh, you're a pro bike racer. So you, have you taken doping? You must, you must have been doped, right? And so I think there's a lot of uh, lack of knowledge about people just think of cycling as the same thing as in 2007 and it's 1996. Whereas if you really get into it, 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 gets, it gets less dramatic because you realize that the spectrum of doping has decreased a lot. Like it's not, the heavy stuff is, is hopefully gone. But there's still a lot of uh, cynicism regarding it. But when you go to the tour, you don't really hear anybody, anybody talk about it. I think people might still think that they are doping, the people that don't know, but the fans and the people who follow cycling, I think they understand that this sport has changed. Let's hear from three riders who have ridden through the sea of people waving Danish flags this weekend. A Danish hero, Mikkel Merku, the American Joe Dombrowski, and first, another Dane, Chris Yule Jensen, who capped the weekend with a win for his bike exchange teammate, Dylan Groenewegen. Oh, it's been an absolutely, uh, you know, a fairytale week for me, to be honest. Uh, you know, I've, I've such a, I have a relation to more or less every stage. I live 3K away from... Uh, where we started the, where we had the time trial. I used to live in, I have a summer house where we, where we rode through yesterday. I used to live in the town that we started in today. I mean, it's just been absolutely fantastic. It's exceeded all my expectations I had before I came to this race. So for Dylan to then uh, pull it off with a win today, just, you know, it's the cherry on the, cherry on the top. So uh, couldn't be happier for him, couldn't be happier for the entire team. Will that be the one memory that will live with you for life? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this tour, the starting tour, the tour start in Denmark was unforgettable, uh, and I think every rider feels the same way. And I, I can only imagine it's a question of a matter of years before it's back, because it's just been a yeah. Everyone's had their mind blown. It's been absolutely fantastic. Such great crowds, such great people. I knew it would be like that, but uh, I don't think all the other uh, foreign riders did. But it's been great. It's been absolutely great. Mate, the last day in Denmark. How's it been? Ah, uh, it's, it's actually. I have to say. I've never seen a crowd like this in my life. It's incredible. I mean, 200K yesterday, I think 160 of it was like 10 people deep. You don't hear the radio because it's just noise. Is it making you sort of just like, do you catch yourself and just sort of smile and just go, this is just actually ludicrous? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was enjoying it the last couple of days. It's like, 
you really feel like this is the biggest sporting event in the world? I have no idea how many people there were out there, but I feel like we can say millions. It's going to be a bit of a come down going to France, just back to the normal hundreds of thousands, yeah. isn't it? No, it's, uh, it's going to be a real, well, yeah. It was a long wait for this Grand Depart, but Denmark has done the Tour de France and cycling proud, do you think? Absolutely, I'm, I'm so proud of uh, how we showed Denmark to the world of cycling. This was something that I looked very much forward to, and I think uh, Denmark and all the people who came to cheer on the road really um, showed the best side of us. And lastly, the next generation of Mikael Merku or Mads Pedersen will somewhere have been watching in the crowd, being inspired by seeing the tour on Danish roads. Absolutely. That's uh, one of the key points that I hope the most for with uh, this Grand Depart in Denmark, that, that hopefully we inspire more kids to start riding the bike. And memories for you to last a lifetime. Absolutely, this is for lifetime. At the finish in Sonnebor, as we waited for the riders, I spoke again to Michael Rasmussen, who now works as a journalist reporting on the race for the Danish media. And in a way, he embodies the rise, fall and rebirth of Danish cycling. I asked him if he considered the Grand Depart a success. Well, it's, it's been uh, an amazing reception of uh, the Tour de France, and it's been long coming. He should have been here last year, but it collided with the Euros uh, soccer uh, championships. Um, and, and, uh, and that just made the expectations grew even higher. Um, I reckon about maybe half the population of this country has watched uh, cycling live these days. What about the spectators? What's your impression? Are they cycling fanatics, sports fanatics, or just almost celebrating Denmark this weekend? Well, cycling uh, is maybe the second sport in Denmark uh, next to soccer, but uh, for the past, say, three decades, um, cycling has had, a, and Tour de France in particular, has had a very uh, special role um, due to the due to the very extensive coverage and, and television and, and, of course, due to the to results made by the, the riders in the past. There might not have been a whole lot to celebrate from a, from a sports point of view um, in terms of spectacular racing, but you know, the people, they made it spectacular. In terms of the generation of Danish riders now, uh, what do you think has created that generation and what do they think of... Um, for example, you know, your part in the history of um, Danish cycling. Denmark is a fairly wealthy country and, uh, and, and cycling is an expensive sport. And, and you know, as a young rider, you do need a lot of support from, from your parents uh, in terms of uh, transportation and material. Um, and the entire educational system is, uh, is quite well geared for elite sports. So if you do have some kind of talent and you do need some kind of liberty, you know, you have all the possibilities to uh, to exercise your your sport at the highest level uh, while you actually get in get an education um, next to it, and I I, I believe that uh, is something that has changed over the years and made it a, a pretty good place to uh, um, to fulfill your 
your dreams if you want to uh, be, if you want to become an elite sportsman at the highest level. And lastly, if you have one memory of this weekend, what will it be? Oh, that would certainly be the way that the the Danes has received the Tour de France and and really taking it in. Um, I su- I suppose that would be the it'll be some long-lasting memories uh, for for this entire country. It's been truly amazing to see uh, the amount of people on the roads. And what's the kind of media and political reception been? I mean, it must have been seen as a huge success. Yeah, well, you know, as always, when you have these uh, giga sports events, it's it's always the matter of, you know, how much does this cost? Um, and I, I believe, you know, maybe at the end of the day, the bill, uh, the official bill will come to something between 20 and 25 million euros. But, you know... It's, that's really nothing, you know. It, 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 it could have been 100 million euros, and it will still have been worthwhile because this is just going to be a, you know, a celebration for the entire country, um, and uh, you can't really measure that uh, in millions or thousands or anything like that. And there could be a future rainbow jersey or a yellow jersey on the, the shoulders of one of the little boys or girls who've been inspired by today. Absolutely, this this you know should inspire an entire generation to go out on the bikes and I know that every little village around uh, the course and around Denmark they have had their own little child tour uh, in these days and the weeks leading up to it as well so you know it, it's, it has obviously these three days has a big impact but there's a lot of little things going on around uh, which has impacts out in the in all the small communities around Denmark. So where does the Danish Grand Depart stand in the list of exceptional Grand Depart of the recent history. I mean, I can think of Yorkshire, the crowds were just as big, the reception was just as enthusiastic and knowledgeable there, I think. Um, how about for you, Michael? Well, for me, this has been comparable to uh, to the Grand Depart in London in, in 2007. Um, I, I believe we started on Trafalgar Square and had the course going through Hyde Park, and it was just absolutely amazing as well. Um, but you have to bear in mind that London is... A, city with 12 million people um, and you know for Denmark it's only not even 6 million people though you know you have a lot higher uh, percentage of the, the audience uh, of the entire population so maybe maybe this should be ranked even higher Our weekend mini break in Denmark is coming to a close Mitch what have you made of it because the crowds have been unbelievable it feels to me like Harrogate in 2014 when there was basically fans wall to wall on the Yorkshire hillsides and the crowds today seem to me almost bigger than yesterday. Mm, it's been a great atmosphere. Um, personally I really loved coming up here. First time I've been up here so I was also going to put my tourist hat on as well and enjoyed some of the delicacies around but the the fans have been great. It's really after only coming to the Tour de France for the first time last year and got a completely different experience because obviously we're at the tail end of the COVID sort of feel. Um, this is feeling like, and from what I've spoken to a lot of guys, a real normal grand apart, as they say, and a Tour de France vibe. Denmark is definitely celebrating cycling, though, isn't it? I mean, the, the number of people who've come out to see it. Um, big crowds in Copenhagen, as we said, but, you know, out in these small towns. I mean, Sonneborg, obviously a reasonable-sized town, but... Um, it's sort of six deep, seven deep in places. Huge crowds. Obviously, cycling in Denmark's in a in a really good state of health at the moment. Perhaps because of the generation of riders. I I I, I totally agree, and especially what's being happening in the race as well with 
Magnus Court Nielsen also, you know, getting that KOM jersey and then riding in the front alone today. What more could they really hope for? I guess maybe uh, Mads to win today. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.